Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. Thanks for joining us today. We're excited that you're here and we're also excited that you follow us on our social media pages. We love interacting with you. So if you haven't clicked that follow button, please do. And if you haven't given us a review yet, we would love to see that as well. Yes, we would. That's how we keep going, people. Mm-hmm. But today I want to jump right into today's case because of the craziness of it. I'm looking forward to hearing your reactions and Christie's to today's dirtbag. I'm excited. It'll be a wild ride. From poisoning to drowning, with a possible stabbing and a car bomb, this case has a little bit of everything. Holy moly, it's the whole meal deal. Mm Mm-hmm. Today we're going to discuss the serial killer, Judy Buonanno. There are some sources that say Judy was named after her mother, but this didn't collaborate with all the records that I found. In fact, there are a lot of different reports of Judy's name. In her father's obituary, she was mentioned as Anna Lou Goodyear. So maybe her family had originally named her after both her mother, with the Lou part, and Anna after her maternal grandmother. But somewhere along the way, she started to be called Judius Anna Welty, and then it got shortened to Judy. I can't say that I've ever heard of the name Judius before, but it's fitting how close it is to Judas, because she too would betray those closest to her. Oh my. Judius or Judy was just one of the many names that she would go by throughout her life. And that's so hard when you're researching to find so many different names for the dirtbag you're trying to find out about. It's so true. But for clarity today, I'm just going to keep referring to her as Judy for the majority of the time. Perfect. Judy was born on April 4th, 1943 in Quanah, Texas, a little town 200 miles northwest of Dallas. She was born into a family of four children, herself and three brothers, Jesse, James, and Gerald. Jesse, James, Gerald, and Judy. Yes, but Gerald is spelled with a G, (laughs) not a J. I kind of assumed, but at least for the audio part of it, that flows really well. It does. But there are also reports that they had a younger brother named Robert that entered her life a little bit later, which I'm not 100% sure if he was a full brother or a stepbrother, but we'll get into it. They still should have named him starting with a J, at least a J sound. (laughs) Sadly for Judy, her mother, Mary Lou, would play a very little role in her life. The relationship with a same-sex parent is so crucial to a child's development. When Judy was only two, her mother became ill with tuberculosis and could no longer care for her four children. Judy's father, Jesse, who was employed as a farm laborer, was also hospitalized at this time for injuries that he had received while serving in World War II. With neither parent to care for them, the children were separated and passed around between family members. Their primary caregivers were Mary Lou's parents, whom the children had stayed with while Jessie was serving in World War II. When her mother passed away when she was just a few months shy of her fourth birthday, Judy and her youngest brother were sent to live with their aging grandparents. Her older brothers were placed for adoption because their father was unable to care for them. Aw, that is really sad. It's always sad when siblings are born apart. It really is. There were some extended family members that would say Jessie's absences from the family were more than just hospital stays brought on by his injuries. Cousins of Judy's would say that her father would frequently abandon the family, leaving them to fend for themselves in a makeshift home that was little more than a lean-to. Oh, man. 
That's a rough start. It is a rough start. Judy's beginning years were very tumultuous. She was frequently moved around between relatives' homes and would eventually be placed in several foster homes throughout the states of Texas and Oklahoma. And I'm not sure if these foster homes were actually state-run homes or if they were just placements with other families. Both extended family and foster parents that the children were placed with were all impoverished and unable to keep the children for any length of time. During her time being passed around, Judy would later say that she was sexually and mentally abused in some homes, physically abused in others, and starved in the majority of them. Oh, that just gives so much trauma and instability in a little kid's life. It really does. And I think that you're going to see it plays into her ability to have relationships later in life. Oh, it would have to. At the age of 10, Judy was reunited with her father and moved to Roswell, New Mexico with her youngest brother. And you think that this would be a good thing, but it was not a happy reunion. Jessie had remarried to a woman named Billie Jean and started a new family. In this new poverty-stricken family, Judy was straight out of a Cinderella movie. According to her, she did not fare well in her stepmother's presence. And her father participated in this ill treatment. She was made to work long hours around the house and at times was loaned out to other families as a laborer that oh. Jessie would then collect the money for. No way! Mm-hmm. When Judy spoke back or failed to be obedient to her father and stepmother, food was withheld and she was beaten and burned with cigarettes. That's terrible! It really is. This punishment did nothing for the anger that was building in Judy against her family. She was defiant and impulsive. At the age of 14, all of that emotion boiled over and she took her own revenge on her two young stepbrothers, scalding them with hot grease. <gasps> oh my gosh. That would hurt so much. That's wicked, yeah. Mm -hmm. She then went into a blind rage, attacking both her father and stepmother with her fist, her feet, and any other thing she could get her hands on. It seems that she had just had enough. She lost control. She did. The episode was so severe that police were called. That Judy hated her family was no secret. When asked why she had scalded two of her stepbrothers and not the other brother, the interviewer had probably expected her to say something like, she liked him more, or something like that. Instead, the 14-year-old said of her other brother, quote, I wouldn't spit down his throat if his guts were on fire. Oh my, Atlanta! What a quote. She is a firecracker. I would not spit down his throat if his guts were on fire. Yeah. Have you ever heard that saying before? No, have you? No. I think she made it up. That was how she was feeling. And at 14. Mm -hmm. But what a horrific life she had, not to justify what she did. But how could she not have anything but hatred for her family? She had absolutely zero sense of safety at any time after her mother passed away. Right. And it led her to lashing out to protect herself. Oh. Judy was jailed 60 days and was sent to an adult facility for this incarceration. At 14? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that was a good choice. Not at all. There among the female inmates, mostly sex workers, Judy received a different kind of education. She learned about feminine wiles and how to be charming and sweet to get what she wanted. Oh, no. When her sentence was complete, the judge gave her the choice of returning to her family or attending a reform school. And she chose the reform school? She absolutely did. And I think choosing the reform school says a lot about how much she disliked her own home and her family. The relationship with her family was never mended after that. 
and from that day on, she would have very little to do with any of them in her adult life. Judy attended Foothills High School, a state-run reform school for girls in Albuquerque, where she graduated from in 1959 at the age of 16. In 1970, Judy attempted to start a new life for herself, complete with a new name. Going by Anna Schultz, she got a job as a nursing assistant in Roswell and began to tell elaborate stories about her family. Storytelling would continue to be a theme in Judy's life. She would tell people that she had a black belt in karate and that her mother was from an Apache tribe that didn't even exist. She also made claims that she was the great-great-granddaughter of Geromino, a famous Indian chief who had ties to Pensacola, Florida. And with her upbringing, it's not surprising that she was making up all these stories to cover up the truth. It was a way for her to escape and pretend that she was someone different, someone who wasn't poor and unloved. Instead, she was someone who was important. One of the only aspects of Judy's life that didn't get an elaborate story was how she became pregnant at the age of 17. When she gave birth to a little boy she christened Michael Schultz on March 30th, 1961, she wouldn't tell anyone who Michael's father was. Hmm. Judy would remain tight-lipped about it for her whole life. There were some rumors that his father was a pilot named Leroy Schultz from the nearby Air Force Base, but Judy would never comment on any of these rumors. I wonder why. It is so curious to me that she didn't use the circumstances around her child's birth as part of a story to make her the center of attention is so odd and out of character for her. And I wonder if whatever the situation was around Michael's conception had anything to do with her later dislike for the child. There were several in Michael and Judy's life that would take note of Judy's attitude towards her firstborn son. Michael was described as being slow and socially awkward. He struggled to make eye contact and communicate. And Judy was said to have been embarrassed by him and would frequently leave him behind when they would later go on family outings. Oh. But as an infant, that was all still to come. It appears that at first, Judy did throw herself into providing for them and finding a way to secure their future. For a while, she worked two jobs. She continued her job as a nurse's assistant and got a second job as a cocktail waitress. There was no way that she wanted to raise her son in poverty. It was while she was waitressing that she set her sights on James Goodyear, a kind and responsible Air Force sergeant with a good paycheck. Falling for her charms, the two were married on January 21st, 1962, just a few months after they had met. Oh, wow, that's quick. Yeah, she didn't waste any time. And he was okay with her having a baby. He was. I think it speaks to his stand-up character. It totally does. At the beginning of their marriage, Judy and James appeared to get along and have a very good relationship. Judy gave birth to the couple's first child, another son, James Jr., on January 16th, 1966. James, being the stand-up kind of guy that he was, adopted Michael shortly after this to make sure that the child always felt a part of the family. Aw, that's awesome. It is. From all accounts, James cared for Michael like he was his own. Ugh. And why can't these stories just be like, the end? They all lived happily ever after. Right. It almost seems that James cared more about Michael than Judy did. In 1967, after they moved to Orlando, Florida for James's new posting, a little girl, Kimberly, joined the family. A year later, using James's financial backing, Judy opened her first business, the Conway Acres Child Care Center. Things for Judy seemed to be going really well, considering where she started as a child. 
And it seems like she's finally in a loving relationship. Right. She was working hard establishing her own business, and she had three loving children to take care of. James was providing for them really steadily as he served in the Air Force. At this time, he was currently serving in South Vietnam. There were rumors that Judy wasn't as happy as you might expect, though. She was pretty lonely without James to keep her warm at night. So she did find someone else to fill that role while he was away. Oh, no. It just seems that she didn't have very much loyalty to James, even though he was a really nice guy to her. Yeah, it sounds like he's gone above and beyond. Mm -hmm. In June of 1971, James returned home. And again, you'd think that this would be a happy time for Judy. She's been upset and lonely because he was gone and now he's returned. But she viewed James's return as anything but happy. She had to stop seeing her peace on the side. And after a brief honeymoon phase for the reunited couple, they started fighting. Within three months of his return from Vietnam, James started to become ill. Oh no, she's not. She is. In her fashion of telling stories, Judy blamed all of James's mysterious symptoms on an allergic reaction to some cure that the army had given him to treat his drug addiction that he had fallen into while in Vietnam. Okay, convenient excuse for her. Right. She probably didn't even need to make up an elaborate or far-fetched story, though, because during Vietnam, herbicides were sprayed over large areas of fighting while troops were present to clear the foliage to allow them to spot incoming threats. Exposure to these herbicides were known to have really severe side effects, and later, during her appeals, her lawyers would claim that it was actually Agent Blue, an arsenic-based herbicide that had killed James. Not Judy's arsenic that she was feeding him. <laughs> That's terrible. It is terrible, but I think Judy could have just gone with that. But instead, she had to be this huge storyteller. And I think she also felt the need to defame James so that she could play the proper victim. Oh, look what he's brought on himself. He's developed this drug problem and then they tried to fix it. And, and this is what's happening to him because of all of that. Yeah, she's totally blaming him. Like if he wasn't such a drug addict, he'd still be alive. That's right. She would similarly complain later to friends and family that James was never any help around the house, leaving her to do everything while he climbed into bed with a 13-year-old girl. What? Yeah. All of these were lies. Okay. I was like, wait a minute. Hold the phone. <laughs> I'm really relieved that those are just lies. Yeah. There was never any proof of any of these things being true. But a witness would later testify that Judy had said that James, quote, didn't deserve to live because he had been so horrible to her. So she's just trying to justify her actions. Right. She needs to be able to build this up and play the victim. Yeah, even if it's fabricated. Right. The U.S. Naval Hospital in Orlando, where John was admitted in September of 1971, did not buy any of Judy's explanations because James had passed a physical on his return and had expressed no concerns about his health when he returned from Vietnam. But now, barely three months later, on September 13th, James was suffering from weakness, nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting, and they had been plaguing him for almost two weeks. When he was admitted to the hospital, James's condition had gotten to the point where he was having hallucinations and was in organ failure. Oh. Doctors were unable to determine the cause of James's condition, and he continued to deteriorate rapidly. He died on September 16th, and his official cause of death was ruled to be cardiovascular collapse and renal failure. At the age of 37, it was deemed that he had died from natural causes. What? Yeah, he was healthy three months ago, and now he had died from natural causes. At 37. Right. 
And poisoning is honestly such a cruel way to kill somebody. Oh, it totally is. And Judy is going to tell a friend all about it. Oh, man. At this time, there was no toxicology reports run on James because Judy played her part of the grieving widow so well, and very few had any suspicions about her. There would be one friend that recalled years later that she was a little put off by Judy showing up to the funeral with the man that she was rumored to be having an affair with. She brought her side piece? Yeah, he just supported her through the funeral. Yeah, he did more than support her, I think. Uh Uh-huh. That is a whole new level of dirtbag. It is. You don't bring your boyfriend to your husband's funeral. Judy did. She sounds like she could be the sister of the case I'm bringing you next week. It will be interesting to compare them for sure. Judy showing up with her side piece at the funeral did trigger a memory for this friend that Judy had once talked about arsenic being used to kill someone. But it was probably just one of those uneasy fleeting feelings that you get because the friend didn't ever voice her concerns. She probably figured that it was just her overactive imagination. Yeah, we can gaslight ourselves into believing things, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And this happens so many times in this case. Because people just can't believe that about someone you've thought about as a friend. It's hard to accept that they might be capable of doing some really cold and dirtbag things. I can see that. And so then you talk yourself out of believing it. Right. And Judy had played up that she was the victim. And so it was easy to believe that the family was probably better off without this addiction-riddled, lazy pedophile that Judy had made James out to be. Oh, yeah. If you believed that, you would be like, good riddance. Right. Suspicious feelings brushed aside. No one picked up on the fact that Judy started to collect $33,000 in life insurance proceeds and $62,000 in indemnity compensation from the Veterans Administration within five days of James' death. Oh, when are they going to learn that you got to give it some time? She never does, and she never gets caught. The life insurance that Judy had taken out on her husband and the military pension paid well, and money added security for her family's future, security, and the ability to have nice things. Judy was known to adore the finer things in life. She was always a well-put-together woman who enjoyed extravagance. Those around her would benefit from her spending because she felt the need to lavish her friends with gifts as well. This made her appear to be kind and generous, and it hid her need to secure her friends with money and things because she struggled to form healthy attachments to those around her. So she was buying her friends. Yep. And this lack of ability to form an attachment could have made it easier for her to dispose of those closest to her for purely selfish reasons, like her husband of 10 years and the father of her children, in a terribly painful and excruciating way. But this was only the beginning. Following James' death, Judy figured out a way to keep the insurance payments rolling in. Mysteriously, the family home caught fire towards the end of that same year. No way! This insurance payout gave her an additional 90000 to spend on new things. Whoa. All of this insurance money combined to over $180,000. And that would be over $1.3 million in US dollars today, or $1.7 Canadian. That's a big payout. They're huge payouts for insurance at this time. Melissa, this is kind of uncanny how the case I'm working on for next week is so similar to this. It is interesting how dirtbags can fall into certain patterns Mm -hmm. and hit certain categories. Right. 
and how we seem to sometimes be in sync to be researching similar cases at the same time. It's almost like we're on the same wavelength. It's true. (laughs) But Judy no longer had a home or someone to take care of her and her three children. So that presented a new problem. That is when her next victim would enter the scene. Bobby Joe Morris worked at a water treatment plant and quickly fell for Judy's feminine wiles. The recently widowed newcomer to Pensacola, Florida, was a vivacious catch. Bobby Joe didn't mind that she had three children in tow. The two moved in together the following year. Over the next five years, Judy and Bobby Joe would live as common-law partners, and Judy took on Bobby Joe's last name to show her commitment to him and take out some life insurance policies. Ah, there we go. She had learned from James's death that it was rather easy to poison someone and get rich. She was confident that because she had gotten away with it the first time, she could get away with it the second time. She was even confident enough to give friends marriage advice on how to deal with their own marital issues, outlining how to get life insurance policies and how to serve arsenic to their husbands. What? Mm Mm-hmm. She just blatantly is saying, hey, if you need some tips on how to murder your husband, I'm your girl. Right. She even told one of her friends that you just have to have a stomach for it because it does take a lot to watch them suffer for so long. And nobody went to the police about this. No. Even when she told a close friend that killing her previous husband had changed her life, they all thought that she was just being Judy, the one who made up crazy stories. No way. So because she was such a liar, they just didn't believe her. That's right. She just thought it was just some crazy story that she had made up, even though she was blatantly telling them, yeah, I killed my husband and it changed my life. So if you want to change your life, this is what I think you should do. So that's the benefit of being a pathological liar is you can just throw in truth once in a while and nobody will bat an eye. Right. It seems crazy in hindsight, but we joke all the time about the craziest stuff. Sometimes about how we would cover up a crime differently. That's true. But I've never once thought you were serious about what you said. So I can see how all of these people did think that she was just kind of talking it up and didn't really take her seriously. Okay, yeah, I could see that. I was, however, listening to another true crime podcast about this case, True Crime Campfire, and the hosts Katie and Whitney brought up some really good insight as to why Judy might be saying such things and revealing her crimes to others. And it went a little bit beyond just being overconfident. It was suggested that serial killers may sometimes do this as a way to check and see if others are thinking the same way they are. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. They reveal a little bit about themselves to see if it resonates with anyone else. And then when it doesn't, they're like, ha ha, just joking. Oh, yeah, I could totally see that. That Mm -hmm. makes sense. I thought it was a super interesting way to think about it. It's like testing the waters. That's right. Judy's brief drop in her facade wasn't well received. And so she just resumed the mask of Bobby Joe's doting partner. That's some good insight. It was. I was really impressed. Around this time, though, Judy and Bobby Joe's relationship was beginning to get a little rocky, perhaps over an incident that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Or maybe it was just the normal stressors that come from raising a blended family. And I'm sure it didn't help that Bobby Joe liked to drink and Judy liked to spend a lot of money. While she was trying to hold things together with Bobby Joe, Judy also continued in the role of the doting mother, at least to her two younger children. 
Michael was now entering his teenage years and was becoming even more of an embarrassment to his mom. I wonder if he reminded her of whoever his father was. That might have been the case, or I think it was that he was just a little bit different than everybody else. By the way he's described in all of the reports, it sounded like he might be on the autistic spectrum. Oh, and there wasn't a lot of knowledge about that during that time. No, he had difficulty making eye contact, forming relationships, reading emotional cues, but it seemed that he was fairly smart, even though he tested very low on his IQ scores. Okay, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. At this time, though, he was acting out at school and causing issues for Judy because nobody else knew how to deal with him. So Judy came up with a solution she felt had been used in her own life. Under the guise of having no money to properly care for her son, Judy handed Michael over to the foster care system so that he could receive psychiatric treatment. What? Yeah. After she had such horrible experiences in foster care? She handed her own child over. It's like feeding him to the wolves. Right. Not that every foster home is like that at all, but that was her experience, and she was still willing to hand him over. Yeah, so as far as she was concerned, her belief was that foster homes were all bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a dirtbag move. Such a dirtbag move. Judy claimed that since James's military benefits were no longer available to them, and that Michael couldn't be seen at the residential facility reserved for military dependents, she could no longer afford to care for her son. So it seemed like as a family, they had him in some supportive care prior to James's death. And then afterwards, he could no longer go to those support centers. Okay. In 1974, Michael did have a psychiatric assessment done and was placed in foster care at the request of his mother. I guess she just didn't feel adequate enough for his care or want to use any of the insurance money that she had collected. Remember, she got a huge payout. Yeah. She I had money. She did. I think she just didn't want to be bothered with them. Right. Even without Michael, though, Judy's lavish lifestyle was still stressing the relationship with Bobby Joe, and he decided to move to Trinidad, Colorado. And there are some that speculate that this may have been a way for him to get away from Judy. Oh, I bet it was. Mm-hmm. But Judy didn't take the hint, and she arranged to follow him. Conveniently or unluckily, depending on whose point of view you're using... Judy and her kids were victim of another house fire. Without a place to stay and a new hefty insurance payout, the scene was set for her and the kids to settle in with Bobby Joe in Colorado in 1977. Wow. So he had left trying to get away from her. But now that she had all this money and he felt kind of sorry for her because she had no place to stay, he lets them move back in with him. And Judy even let Michael tag along too, pulling him out of foster care. If anyone needed any further proof that Judy was a selfish dirtbag, here it is. She just manipulates the system and other people's lives to suit her own needs and what she wants. I'm actually surprised that she took Michael with her. It is surprising. I actually think that I'm speculating here, but I think some of the problems between Bobby Joe and Judy began over Michael. Oh, because he was upset she gave him away, basically. That's right. Oh, okay. So look, I'm such a good person. I went and got my son and now I'm here. Or she might have thought it would be harder for him to refuse her because of Michael's needs. Right. It was an interesting choice and definitely not in Michael's best interest because he was just becoming established in his care facility. Oh, that's so bad. It is. 
it was shortly after Judy moved in with Bobby Joe in Colorado that he started to get sick. Surprisingly, with almost identical symptoms that James had previously suffered from. On January 4th, he was hospitalized at the San Rafael Hospital, and once again, doctors couldn't figure out what was making him sick. Once in the hospital, though, away from Judy, he did start to improve quite a bit. On the 21st, he was released back into Judy's care, and she worked more quickly administering bigger doses of arsenic. Two days later, Bobby Joe collapsed at the dinner table and was rushed back to the hospital. He never recovered this time and died on January 28th. His cause of death was attributed to cardiac arrest and metabolic acidosis. No testing for arsenic was completed because Judy again sold her devoted partner act to the doctors. Judy's behavior did raise some suspicion with other people, though. A nurse would later testify that she had seen Judy forcefully give Bobby Joe a drink of something while in the hospital, and the nurse had thought it was odd. But Judy was a nursing assistant, and so she probably just figured, well, she knows what she's doing, so she didn't say anything. Well, and it must have been definitely by force for that to raise any kind of flag with that nurse. Because otherwise, it would be like, oh, look at that loving wife giving her husband a drink. Right. The nurse said it looked like Bobby Joe was trying to refuse it, and she was pouring it down his throat. That's terrible. And so gutsy of her to be doing that, to literally feeding her husband poison in a hospital with all these people around. Right. Well, she's going around telling people she did it to her first husband and nobody's believing her. Yeah, she's got some nerve. She does. Bobby Joe's family also had concerns, but all of these concerns would be vocalized too late. They found it odd that Judy pushed for cremation and loudly declared that as Bobby Joe's wife, she had the right to decide. But his mom fought this and because she was legal power of attorney, she won. Bobby Joe was buried instead of being cremated. Bobby Joe's mother, Lodell Morris, said she had never come forward at the time about her suspicions because she was fearful of what Judy would do. And it seems that she might have had good reason based on some of the conversations she claims to have overheard between Bobby Joe and Judy. In 1974, while the couple were visiting Lodell, she overheard Judy say about a man that, quote, he shouldn't have come here in the first place. He knew if he came up here, he was going to die. Lodell was suspicious of the statement because Alabama police had just found Ben J. Sherrod of Miami dead and tied to a chair in their Bruton Motel. What? His throat was cut and he had been shot. <gasps> That's a jump up from poison. It's quite a jump up. Lodell felt that her suspicions were confirmed when on his deathbed during a lucid period, she overheard her son Bobby Joe say to Judy, quote, we should have never done that terrible thing. Oh, they did this together? Mm-hmm. That's a plot twist I didn't see coming. I thought Bobby Joe was a good guy. Well, he was a pretty sketchy character. Apparently. So I'm not sure if it was because he was trying to get away from her because this happened, or if it was the conflict over Michael, that that's why he chose to leave. Of course, all of this is hearsay and would never be admissible in any court and would never result in extra charges for Judy at all. The murder remains unsolved to this day. Wow. So it's all just speculation. I wonder. It is very curious. 
In early February, Judy cashed in on three different life insurance policies that she had taken out on Bobby Joe. Again, she didn't wait very long. No, not at all. She then moved back to Pensacola with her three children, and on May 3rd, 1978, changed all of their last names to Buenoano. It was a very strange thing to do right after fleeing another state if you weren't guilty of anything. Stranger still is when you examine her reasoning. Judy claimed that she wanted to honor her first husband. So that is why she chose Buena Ano, which when you correctly put the accent in the right place, means good year in Spanish. And that was James's last name. Oh, that is an odd choice. Mm -hmm. It's like, honey, you killed him. Right? And really, if you wanted to honor your first husband, why not just let the children keep the actual last name of your first husband? The kids were already Goodyear. Oh, yeah. That is very odd. It's so odd. And I can't see any real reason for changing their last name except to get away with murder so that nobody can track them. Yeah, there is then not that connection. Right. Even though they were married. (laughs) Maybe she just liked how splashy it sounded. Maybe. It's just a very odd thing to do. And interestingly, if you forget the accent, it actually means good anus. No way. (laughs) Get out. No. But I wonder if she actually thought about that. I'm going to hope that she did not realize that that's what it meant without the accent. Which is so funny. Good anus. Good anus. Oh, my gosh. That just seems like a little bit of poetic justice. It does. Because she had to go by it the rest of her life. (laughs) (laughs) And is still known by it today. Yep. Back in Pensacola on Whispering Pine Drive in an affluent neighborhood in Gulf Breeze, Judy returned to her shopping sprees and beauty salon appointments. And unfortunately, Michael continued his pattern of academic failure by dropping out of high school in his sophomore year. He joined the Army in June 1979 and drew an assignment to Fort Benning, Georgia, after basic training. Before he left on assignment, he stopped off to visit his mother in Florida, and that would be the beginning of the end for him. Aw. She kills her own son. But to her, he was just disposable right from the beginning. He was. By the time he reached his posting on November 6th, Michael was already showing symptoms of base metal poisoning. But the army doctors were a little bit faster than others to pick up on the cause of Michael's symptoms. They tested for arsenic and found seven times the normal levels in Michael's body. Seven times? Mm Mm-hmm. And there was little they could do to reverse its destructive action. Doctors had tested for arsenic because Michael, during his training, had been working with a water purification system that used arsenic. And they feared he had been accidentally poisoned. Oh no, so this is going to explain it away and she won't be suspected. Right. But it hadn't been an accident at all. It was just good old mom taking care of him. Only she hadn't been able to finish by the time he had to leave for his assignment. In January of 1980, Michael underwent three months of physical therapy at Walter Reed Hospital, then was transferred to Tampa for long-term physical therapy and occupational rehabilitation because the poisoning had caused the nerves in his limbs to shrink so much, they lost almost all function below the knees and elbows. And how can you as a mom watch your son go through such excruciating pain? And it not bother you. Didn't seem to bother Judy at all. She is cruel to her core. Mm Mm-hmm. When Michael left the hospital months later, it was wearing heavy braces on both his legs and a prosthetic device, a Robinson hook, on one arm. All of the gear weighed a total of 15 pounds. Wow. 
Judy had talked the doctors into releasing Michael into her care because she had arranged to have long-term rehabilitation care done at home. She proudly boasted that she had spent almost $40,000 in renovations so that Michael could be comfortable in his own home. Where really, she just wanted him home to finish off the job, I'm sure. Right. Because this is the woman that wouldn't even pay for a single psych eval for him earlier. She sent him into foster care for that. Yeah, so there's no way she's renovating her home to suit him. No, it's just a line she was telling the doctors. Judy picked Michael up from Veterans Administration Hospital in Tampa Bay on May 12, 1980. The very next day, she planned an outing for the family. I can't imagine how Michael was feeling after all these long years of his mother not wanting him around. All of a sudden, here she is making these big, grandiose plans to take care of him. He must have for once in his life felt like he was the special one. Yeah, like finally, in my hour of need, mom is here to help. Right? She's finally coming through for me. She really does love me. Mm -hmm. And if you had just gotten your child out of the hospital and they have very significant mobility issues, what kind of outing do you think you are planning? Something not too physically active. No, or strenuous. Right. A nice picnic by the lake, maybe. Going to a movie. Something easy, right? Yeah. Judy planned a canoe trip. No way. While Kimberly stayed on shore, Judy and James Jr. strapped Michael into a lawn chair with just a ski belt on. What's a ski belt? A ski belt is one of those old alternatives to a life jacket. It's just that big boyu thing that goes around your waist. It doesn't go over your arms, just around your waist. Okay. They placed Michael and his lawn chair in the middle of the canoe and they started on their journey down the East River near Milton, Florida around 10.30 a.m. to go fishing. And why was Kimberly not allowed on the boat? Was there not enough room? For some reason, she had been left behind. According to witnesses, around 2.30, Judy and James were seen along the river, along with the overturned canoe, an ice chest, and a lone flip-flop floating down the river. And Judy was frantically trying to get out of the water once she had spotted someone. As the witness pulled them from the water, Judy told them about the terrible accident that they had just escaped from. The first of Judy's several versions of events was that a snake had jumped into the canoe and that as they were trying to get the snake out, the canoe hit a submerged log and the canoe capsized, pitching them all into the water. Judy said James had went under the water and she had fought to get to him and then had tried to go back for Michael, but the current was too strong and they were forced to float down the river and try to get to the shore working with the current. The witness said that Judy told him that it was useless to go back and get Michael because it had been so long since they had capsized. And what mother would say that? Exactly. What kind of mother says that at all? When I was little, my brother and his friend were playing hockey on a pond by our house in the late spring. The two of them fell through the ice, and I remember my mom jumping in after them. She was able to get my brother first because he was still in the opening that they had fallen through. But the other boy had slid under the ice. Oh my goodness. My mom brought my brother to shore and then immediately went back for the other boy. She went under again and again looking for him and didn't give up until she was able to bring him up to the surface. And that wasn't even her child. It was just a neighborhood friend and she didn't stop. So I cannot imagine a mother saying, oh, just don't worry about him. It's too late. Yeah, that was very heroic of your mom, first of all. And second of all, what a dirtbag Judy is. No mom would say that. No, 
Not at all. Even the witness at the river was like, what do you mean we're just going to leave him here? And this is a river in Florida. It has alligators in it. Oh, my gosh. I just cannot even imagine. As a mom, they would have had to pry me away from that river. Right. You're not just going to go up and sit in the car. Yeah. Like, oh, it's unfortunate, but I'm sure he's gone. Don't bother looking. What? It's just so odd. Someone should have thrown her in there and let the alligators do their job. Mm Mm-hmm. When police arrived at the scene, Judy introduced herself as Dr. Buenano. Doctor now? Mm-hmm. And retold her story of the capsized canoe and elaborated on her harrowing rescue of her one son, but her inability to save Michael. And it was her professional opinion as a doctor that he would not have survived. That's right. She started making up this story about how she was a doctor. To try and give herself some credibility, maybe? Like, oh, I know he'd be dead. He cannot be resuscitated. Right. But you'd still want them to get him. You don't want him to become alligator food. No. If you were a normal mother, you would. If you were a decent human being of any kind, you would. Exactly. When investigators found Michael three hours later, he hadn't moved far from where the canoe had capsized. Oh. Weighed down with his heavy braces and with the inability to control his limbs, he had drowned in the water. He was only a quarter mile from where his mother and brother had been rescued. Rescuers reported that the current was slow moving that day, and when they found Michael, he was not wearing a ski belt like Judy had said. So I bet she took it off, because he was seen having it on when they left. His brother James remembers him having it on when they left. Oh. And how old was James? Was he old enough to know what was going on, like what his mom had actually just done? James was 14 at the time, so he was made to give a witness statement of what he remembered. During the trial, his testimony did corroborate his mother's story, that a snake had fallen into the canoe and that they had hit a log. But his original statement to the police the day of said nothing about a snake. He said he had fallen into the water and lost consciousness, and then he didn't remember anything after that until he woke up in the ambulance. Oh, so I'm sure his mom gaslit him into believing that he had seen a snake. Right. Despite the multiple discrepancies in the story, though, the police investigating the accident bought Dr. Bonanno's story and Michael's death was ruled an accident. After all, who's going to question the good word of a practicing clinical physician that Judy was claiming to be? Oh my goodness. Nobody checked her credentials. No, they just took her word for it. And even if you read newspaper articles from that time, they're announcing her as a doctor. (laughs) That's what's wild about that time. You could just claim anything. Yeah. I guess this is before the time when you could just Google search somebody. Right. It was easier to make these outrageous claims and get away with them at that time. And most people don't lie about being a doctor. No, not at all. But most people aren't killing their sons either. True. But army investigators did pay a little bit more attention to Judy's claims. And their interest was definitely piqued when they learned that she collected Michael's life insurance policy just days after his death. They also learned that there were multiple civilian policies on Michael's life, all with double indemnity provisions for accidental death. Oh, yeah. One that had been purchased March 22, 1970, another in October 1978, and another on April 5th, just a month before the accident. In total, Judy received a little over $100,000 in benefits from her son's death. Oh, so she's literally being rewarded for killing people. Absolutely. And because of the time, insurance companies aren't talking with each other. 
nobody's putting all of these claims together. So nobody's recognizing that she has multiple claims on the same person. That's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. The Army, though, did open their own investigation on May 28th. Looking at the different signatures on all of the policies, a handwriting expert believed that Michael's signatures had been forged. Judy had been trying to be extra careful with Michael. Instead of taking the insurance policies out in her own name and naming herself as beneficiary, she forged Michael's signature that he had taken the policies out and just named her as beneficiary. Oh, man. Unfortunately, prosecutors at the time did not believe that this was strong enough evidence to bring Judy in on charges. And so Judy just continued on with her life as normal. I can't believe she drowned Michael. She just got impatient, I think. She had decided years before that he was going to die. And you could track that through her getting a whole bunch of insurance policies. It's true. It's so sad. It is. With the insurance money from her son's death, she purchased a beauty salon that she named Fingers and Faces in Gulf Breeze and bought a new Corvette. Fingers and Faces? Yep. That's a terrible name. <laughs> it is, but she also just named her last name Good Anus. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Come see Mrs. Good Anus at Fingers and Faces. That's right. Oh, it's so funny. And a new Corvette? She's really feeling some grief with the wind blowing in her hair. Yeah. Well, that way it can dry her tears, Melissa. Oh, that's what it is. That's why she got it. She had to because she's so upset. Right. And it's funny when you don't even like people to open up a people-driven service. Well, she liked all the attention that she got. I think, honestly, she just spent so much time getting her own nails and lashes done that she's like, oh, I'll just buy a salon and then I can just get it done. It's not like she was working the beauty salon. Oh, okay. At least that wasn't one of the titles she gave herself. I'm surprised. She was a doctor after all. Right. She's a good storyteller. She must be because people don't seem to be batting an eye. No, they totally believe her. Judy was living her best life, gossiping at the beauty salon, going on shopping sprees, the only thing that was missing was another man. It wasn't long before Judy found John Gentry II, a Pensacola businessman that had an office close to her beauty salon. John fell hard for Judy, who he met at a mud wrestling match. He believed all the lies she told him about, about being a head nurse at a prominent hospital, having a PhD. To John, Judy was the catch with all of her flashy nails, her eyelashes and big personality. She was all fun for him. He had no problem pampering her and enjoying the finer things in life. He took her on Caribbean cruises, imported champagne straight from France, and lavished her with gifts. John felt the two were absolutely smitten with each other and made the perfect couple. By October 1982, they were engaged and Judy had him planning for their future by talking him into taking out life insurance policies on each other. No. And honestly, I can't even imagine why she would want to get rid of John. He was treating her like a queen. He was taking her on cruises and buying her pretty much anything she wanted. Yeah, what would she even need the insurance payout for? I don't know. She already has so much money already. I'm not really sure what need she's trying to fill, but she was trying to fill some need. She went behind John's back and without his knowledge, increased the $50,000 policy that he had agreed to to $500,000. Whoa, that's a lot of money for 1982. It is a huge amount of money. She paid the premiums out of her own money so that John would never find out. <laughs> what would you do if you found out your husband had a secret insurance policy on you that you had no idea about? 
after doing this true crime podcast, I would be calling the police. (laughs) Yeah. Side eye. (laughs) Very sus. But I do really think this speaks to her inability to form attachments and her need to feel validated through material things. That all is the essence of her greed. That's why she needs to keep doing these things, even though she could have been perfectly happy with him. Right. But I think having that kind of a loving relationship probably made her feel vulnerable. And so keeping them at arm's length helped her to stay in control. Yeah, she just wasn't capable of having a close relationship. It seems the only two people that she ever developed any kind of attachment to were her two youngest children. Okay, James and Kimberly. Right. In November, John got a cold and trusted Judy when she said she was giving him vitamin C capsules. After all, she was a nurse, so she knew what she was doing. When he complained about getting sicker, Judy told John to take a double dose. It wasn't long before he started vomiting and having convulsions. He was hospitalized on December 16th, and once again, another one of Judy's men recovered while she wasn't around. When John returned home after 12 days, he dutifully began to take Judy's vitamins again and immediately developed symptoms. He made the connection between the pills and his symptoms. Unfortunately, he failed to connect the final dot that led back to Judy. He just assumed that there was something wrong with the vitamins. Oh no. Well, you wouldn't want to think that your loving spouse, your newlywed spouse really, would be trying to off you with vitamins. I think all of these people have never listened to a true crime podcast before. It's true. But when you're in that situation, you're probably not going to immediately go to thinking that your spouse is trying to kill you. Not at all. You think that they're trying to care for you. John did stop taking the vitamins and he continued to improve. This meant that Judy had to come up with a plan B to ensure that she could collect her biggest payday yet. On the evening of June 25th, 1983, John and Judy made plans to meet at Driftwood Restaurant and go out with friends. Judy had told John some story about why they had to drive in separate vehicles, but was so kind to him that she made up for this inconvenience by making sure he had the best parking spot, and she was insistent that he use it. Oh, how nice of her. Mm -hmm. She's all about taking care of him. During the evening, Judy shares the joyful news that she is expecting. For real, she is? No. Oh, she's a complete liar. Okay. (laughs) She's reeling you in, Christy. Okay, right. (laughs) How gullible am I? I'm like, she is? (laughs) Amid the congratulations, though, Judy gives John a little wink and suggests that he go to the liquor store and get some champagne so that they can celebrate in private later on. Doesn't she know that champagne is bad for the baby? Not at this time they don't. They still drink all through their pregnancies. That's true. And there is no pregnancy. That's right. John is more than willing to oblige to that invitation. I bet he was. Yeah. John left the party early, but he never made it to the liquor store. When the kind, love-struck man turned the key in his ignition, the taillight came on in his car and triggered a bomb made of dynamite. Miraculously, John did survive the explosion and was rushed to the hospital. What? As he fought for his life, police began to investigate the car bombing. One of the first things they noted, it was an amateur that had arranged the bomb. The bomb was located towards the back of the car, away from the driver's seat and the gas tank. It had been the bomb's placement that saved John's life. A professional would have placed the bomb more strategically. Oh, interesting. The whole top of the car was completely gone. 
Oh my gosh. But the bottom part was, it looked just fine. It was just the top. So they knew that the way that the explosives went off, that it wasn't somebody that understood explosives. Yeah. And it wasn't close to the gas tank, which would have caused a big explosion. Right. And that's what saved his life. And where it was seated in the back, it had to go through two seats to actually even do any damage to John. That's good. It is good. He was still significantly hurt, but he did make it through. Police start to dig into John's life looking for someone that might have motive to want him dead. His fiance isn't one of the people they look at. She's a successful businesswoman, and there didn't seem to be any problems in their relationship. Everybody thought they were this perfect couple. It wasn't until police were able to interview John himself four days after the accident that Judy's house of lies would start to crumble. When police fact-checked all the things that John was telling them about his fiancée, there wasn't anything that added up. And I think, poor John, here he is, he thinks he has this wonderful life, he's engaged to this wonderful woman, and it was all a lie. One by one, the police break the news to him. Judy doesn't have any qualifications as a nurse or a doctor. She was definitely not pregnant because she had been sterilized in 1975. She had booked a cruise for her and her kids without him, and she had been telling their family and friends that he had a terminal illness, but not to tell anybody about it. And she had started telling this story in November of 1982. Which totally proves premeditation. Exactly. She was preparing everybody to get ready for his death, and that's about the time that he started to get sick. Oh. Police also told him about the $510,000 life insurance policy that was on him. John was shocked, but he now was able to connect all the dots. He turned over two vitamin capsules that he had pocketed, and police were able to analyze them. They found it contained paraformaldehyde, a class 3 poison. A later search of Judy's house revealed wire and tape in her bedroom, which matched the remains to the bomb found in John's car. Oh, she didn't even get rid of it. No, they were also able to trace the source of the dynamite. Police were able to link Judy to its purchase through telephone records. She was arrested for attempted murder, but she posted her own bail. Of course she did. She had all this bags of money. From all the insurance policies. From all her murders. Yep. How ironic that her past murders are paying for her bail for an attempted murder. Ay ay ay. Police, though, didn't stop digging up all the dirt on Judy. As they searched her past, they kept unraveling more and more of the lies and the crimes that Judy had been able to get away with. Former assistant prosecutor at the time, Russ Edgar, described the experience by saying, quote, Somebody said her son got killed. Then somebody said her boyfriend got killed. Then somebody said her husband got killed. Things just got curiouser and curiouser. Judy was indicted and arrested at her beauty shop for the first degree murder of Michael and grand theft on January 11th, 1984. The night of her arrest, she faked convulsions and had to be sent to the hospital. But no one was buying her dramatics anymore. And it sounds like the police officer just kind of went, okay, are you done now? Like, get up. (laughs) But she had seen the men in her life suffer with convulsions and would have thought she could mimic what it looked like. I'm sure she thought that, but it didn't work. She wasn't that good of an actress. No, not when it comes to convulsions anyway. How would you not burst out laughing if you were that officer and saw her? fall on the ground (laughs) pretending to fall. It sounds like he just pretty much rolled his eyes. 
And then out of obligation, they had to take her and get her checked out at the hospital. To cover their own butts. That's right. He's like, okay, get up now. The decision was made to exhume the bodies of Judy's former husband and boyfriends to reassess their causes of death. Bobby Joe Morris's remains were exhumed on February 11th, 1984. It was found that his remains contained arsenic. James Goodyear's body was exhumed on March 14, 1984. The medical examiner found high levels of arsenic in his liver, kidneys, hair, and nails, and that indicated they had been chronically exposed to arsenic. Police also exhumed the body of Gerald Dawson, a former boyfriend of Judy's that had died mysteriously. His body also showed signs of arsenic poisoning, but Florida police decided not to press charges in this case because of lack of evidence. So there isn't really a lot that's known about him, but they were suspicious enough about his involvement with Judy and his death that they exhumed his body. Oh, I totally believe she did it. Mm -hmm. That's not a coincidence that he had these high levels of arsenic and that was her MO at the time. Right. As police dug into Judy's life, the three now suspicious deaths and frequent insurance claims weren't all they found. They found paper trails for Judy's next planned victims. And it seemed she might have had something even bigger up her sleeve. Police discovered that Judy had taken out life insurance policies on her best friend, her best friend's sisters, along with her friend's father. Whoa! While Judy would never admit to any of her crimes, and certainly wasn't going to admit what she had planned for these individuals, there is only one reason I can think of for this dirtbag to be taking out life insurance policies on all of these people. Yeah, those are not people that you would typically take an insurance policy out on. No, I wouldn't take an insurance policy out on you, and then your husband, and then your dad. No, that would be the most bizarre thing ever. It's just so weird. Even just, I wouldn't take one out on you, let alone your husband and your father. Right. Maybe I should take one out on you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it does make me wonder, was this best friend one of the ones that she was out to dinner with the night she sent John off to get champagne? Was this friend unknowingly witnessing their own potential fate as they were slowly ensnared in the web of deceit that Judy spun with her gifts and meals and presents to her friends? Yeah, that's a thought. Could you imagine just sitting there watching this horrific thing happen and then realizing, oh, she probably had something similar planned for me? She 100% did. You do not take out a policy on someone who isn't in your immediate intimate family. It's just wild. It is. And it just shows how brazen she had gotten. I still think it's crazy that you can just put an insurance policy on anybody that you don't have to notify them. Well, and it's not even very smart of Judy because if you have that happen to three people in a family, like her friend, her husband, her dad, that's going to cause suspicion. I think at this point, she just feels she's so above suspicion or thinking that they can catch her. She feels invincible. Yeah. Judy appeared before three Florida juries from 1983 to 1985. That is quick for one trial, let alone three. That's what I was just thinking. During the trials, Judy's performance in front of the three different juries did not go over well. She told different versions of events about Michael's death and then tried to explain each of the deaths by blaming the victim. The claim I found the hardest to take was when she blamed Michael for Bobby Joe's death, what? saying that Michael had caught Bobby Joe trying to molest his younger sister, Kimberly, and then it had been Michael that poisoned him for revenge. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So she's throwing her dead son 
under the bus. Yeah. Because he's not there to defend himself. Right. But Kimberly would validate this claim by saying her brothers had walked in on Bobby Joe trying to take her clothes off and chasing her around the house. What? Mm-hmm. Kimberly would stand by her mom the whole time. So was this true or was she lying for her mom? I don't know. Wow. But I don't think Michael had the wherewithal to poison anybody. No. On June 6, Judy was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for the first 25 years for Michael's death. Judy's trial for the attempted murder charges against John opened on October 15th and lasted three days. Jurors deliberated a mere two hours before voting to convict. At sentencing, she received an additional 12 years for the attempted murder. A year later, on October 22, 1985, Judy went to trial for the murder of her husband, James Goodyear. The trial consumed a week, with Judy denying any criminal activity, but jurors weren't buying her act. They convicted her with a second charge of first-degree murder, and she was formally sentenced to death by electrocution on November 16th. Colorado prosecutors decided not to continue with the case against her over the murder of Bobby Joe Morris, as she was already under sentence of death in Florida. I hate when that happens. It does not seem like it's justice. No. Even if it's not going to make a difference in their sentence, I still think that they should be convicted of that crime. It is a lot of money, though, to go through the trial. Well, they should have made her pay for it with all her insurance money she had sitting in her bank account. That would have been justice and probably irked her even more than any of the other sentences is if you would have taken away her money. And charge her double. Yeah. Judy's son, James Jr., was charged as an accomplice. The state contended that he wired the bomb in John's car. But in a separate trial, the then 18-year-old was acquitted on August 10th. So police did feel that he was involved enough to charge him. Hmm. Judy spent 13 years on death row appealing her convictions. The whole time, she maintained her innocence. She spent her time writing letters, crocheting blankets and baby clothes, and teaching Bible study to other inmates. While she awaited her executions, she designed cards and wrote poetry and then sold them. One of the cards that was signed by her three times sold for $1.5 million. $1.5 million. Yep. Some dirtbag paid $1.5 million to have her signature on a poem. Yep. She's speechless. I am. That's going to take me a second. It seems so crazy. And do you think this is all just kind of an act for her? Like, oh, I'm going to make baby clothes because I'm so wholesome. Yeah, I don't know. She had a different relationship with Kimberly. And so she just wanted to be a good grandmother now, I guess. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. And we've said this before, but they should not be allowed to earn money, especially $1.5 million, when they're incarcerated like that. It does seem crazy. You should not profit over your fame for killing people. No. One of the poems she wrote did seem very insightful. It read, quote, Don't be fooled by me. Don't be fooled by the face I wear. For I wear a thousand masks. Masks I'm afraid to take off, and none of them are me. Pretending is an art that's second nature to me. But don't be fooled. For God's sake, don't be fooled. Wow. She talks about masks and that she's afraid to take them off and acknowledges that nobody actually really knows her. And I think that's true. Oh, I 100% believe that that's true. She just spent her whole life building up persona. She probably didn't even know who she really was. I don't think she did. 
In a television interview just a few days before the execution, she maintained claims of her innocence. Judy said, quote, I have eternal security, and I know that when I die, I will go straight to heaven, and I will see Jesus. I would like to clear the record for my grandson. I would like for him to know that his grandmother was not a murderer. I hate when they say stuff like that at the end. Does it make you question that they weren't guilty? No. <laughs> She's just an even bigger dirtbag than I thought. Jesus knows the truth. Yeah, he does, Judy. He hey. knows you're a dirtbag. And you're not going to heaven. <laughs> you murder people. <laughs> right? It's just so odd to me when they do that. Well, and it's just so disrespectful to their victims when they're trying to save face and, oh, woe is me. I've been wrongly convicted. And she did claim that the whole time. After all of her appeals being denied, Judy received one last day of execution 20 hours before her scheduled electrocution. The stay was granted because of questions being raised about the humanity of the electrocution chair in Florida, the one that was nicknamed Old Sparky. It was 75 years old and had recently had a malfunction that produced one-foot-high flames when a prisoner was executed. No way. Yeah, his head caught fire. It's definitely not humane. It did not sound humane at all, especially for this particular prisoner. Oh, that is terrible. Mm -hmm. After assurance that the chair was perfectly functioning, Judy spent the final hours seeing her adult children and some extended relatives and her spiritual advisor. Her execution was set for 7 a.m. on Monday, March 30th, 1998. Ironically, it was Michael's birthday. No way. Mm -hmm. She was executed on Michael's birthday? She was. Good. At 4.30 a.m., Judy showered and dressed and had her head shaved to give good electrical conductivity so that her hair would not catch fire during the electrocution. Oh my gosh. Her final meal consisted of steamed broccoli and asparagus with tomato and lime wedges, strawberries, and hot tea. That's an odd choice. That would not be what I choose for my last meal. No. She entered the execution chamber at 7.02 a.m. accompanied by several guards. She was strapped into Old Sparky with eight leather straps over her wrist, waist, chest, and legs. The calf and headpiece electrodes were fitted, each containing moistened sponges to reduce the burning of the flesh. When asked if she had any final statements, she replied, no, sir. Squeezing her eyes shut and keeping them shut, she didn't look at any of the 48 witnesses on the other side of the glass partition. A leather mask was placed over her face, and at the signal from the warden, the automatic electrocution cycle commenced at 7.08. A small amount of white smoke was seen to curl up from her right leg after the electrocution, but there were no flames. She was pronounced dead at 7.13 a.m. And she was the first female to be executed in Florida for quite a long time. Wow. That is a really gruesome way to go. It would not be the way I choose, that's for sure. But that is the tragic case of the greed-filled dirtbag Judius Bonanno, who lured men close in her web of lies just to portray them in the end to accomplish her own selfish means. She's totally selfish. And terrible and conniving. I just still can't even get over that she drowned her son. And I think it's just poetic justice that she was taken off this earth on his birthday. Yeah. But it sounds like you might have another interesting case for us with some similar themes next week. That's right. It is going to be drama filled. That's for sure. Those are my favorite kind. I can't wait till next week. <laughs> I know you'll be joining me 
but I hope the rest of you listening will as well. Until then, see ya. Bye. you don't have to edit those out good catch because that would have been crappy to to edit (laughs) yeah you can't put that in there but yeah yeah. (laughs) i'm sure it was the butt of several jokes Uh (laughs) so funny right (laughs) you were dying to put that in there (laughs) i totally was she's terrible police though didn't stop digging up digging at Police, police though didn't stop digging up all, digging up all the. What did the police dig? What they do? They didn't stop digging up all the dirt. Is curiouser? Curious. <laughs> That's what it says. Curiouser. Oh, that was in the quote. Mm-hmm. Oh, and isn't that the line from Curiouser Wonderland? I don't know. Colorado perse- persecutors <laughs> persecute you. <laughs> Judy Good Anus. <laughs> If you say say it really fast, it sounds very dirty. It does. (laughs) Judy Good. (laughs) Okay. There, now you have something for bloopers. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.